If you brought a copy of Scripture, you can find 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, as we begin a brand new series, as we so often do in the summer, setting aside our normal exposition of where we're at, which is Genesis, uh, and we'll come back to that in the fall, too. This new series, we're titled, it's titled, you're looking at 500, the story of the Reformation in the Scriptures, that set the church free. And I hold in my hands and throughout the duration of this series, while I'm preaching at least, my very first Bible, my very first whole Bible. I remember when it came in the mail about a week after I became a Christian, I literally just walked around the house holding it. Just, I loved this thing. I still love this thing. This, this, this Bible holds so many memories to me. And when I look at some of the notes I wrote, I think, what were you thinking? Anyway, Besides that, I love the Bible itself. And, um, but loving the truth of God is, is so much more than just loving what you hold in your hands. And so that's what we're, we want to rediscover in a new reformation, if possible, what it means to really love the truth of God as those who went before us showed us the way in that regard. So what I would like you to do, you're in 1 Thessalonians, and we're looking at the verses 4 through, um, through 10. I'm actually going to read it from the ESV because most of you are holding those anyway. But here's what it says, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes to this very young church. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, just for a moment, I, every once in a while people say, how do I know if I'm chosen? That, you don't have to worry about whether you're chosen. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll know you're, you know you're chosen then. But Paul says, I know God chose you, and the, answer, and the reason he knew is what follows. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, by the way, it did need to come in word. And that word, word, is used repeatedly in this passage. It needed to come in word, but not only word, as he says. But it also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know that what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake and you became mimite. That's the Greek word. It's translated imitators. It was used of a child imitating his parent. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. They were a suffering church. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always the source of our joy regardless of circumstances. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, that would be modern-day Greece, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. That is, it's echoing back to us. And here's the reception. And by the way, the rest of this passage is the proof in the pudding as to whether you're truly born again, whether you truly know God, that's when you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son who delivers us from the wrath to come. God, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, that you would use this short series to create a flame in our hearts for the truth of God, your truth. 
And to, like the Thessalonians, change the world around us so that it would echo back what you're doing right here. May this become ground zero for great things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, my wife and I traveled up to Britt, Iowa, where uh, my wife was saved, baptized, and discipled, and uh, we enjoyed our time with that church. Uh, and she spoke to the women, I spoke to the men, then I preached to the church. On our way up there, we stopped at McDonald's for a little, little breakfast, uh, kind of quick little thing, bite to eat before we got up to Britt. And uh, my wife walked right into the men's restroom and used it. Did I forget to tell you that the women's was closed and everybody was directed to the men's restroom? See, that changes everything, doesn't it? You put a context around something, it changes, it takes the shock value, the funny, and everything else out of it. Let me tell you something. Churches in earlier days and to this present hour are butchering the word of God in the same way. Crafting, twisting, distorting, torching the word of God to create things that have no context. And they fool and deceive people. 500 years ago in the days preceding the Reformation, nearly all truth lacked clarity and context. People were spiritually enslaved by the very institution designed to set them free, namely the church. And before you think, well, that was then and now it's now, you better think again. Regardless of this age of information where the Bible is just readily, readily available to all of us, we all got stacks of Bibles or whatever, and you're using it, whatever on your electronic device, whatever, there is a kind of self-imposed enslavement going on. It's happening in some of your lives right now. You, the truth is available, but you don't read it. Uh, and do you know that Amos predicted this would happen in our day, and I think, it's I think the fulfillment of that is happening right now. When Amos said, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will bring a famine on the land. Not a famine for food or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. That's the day in which we live. I was raised in a very religious, incredibly loving home. I had wonderful parents. I had awesome brothers and sisters. We weren't rich, not even close, but I don't, like most of you, I don't ever remember missing a meal. And yet, I was starving. Worse yet, I didn't know I was starving. I didn't have truth. The church that Martin Luther would challenge was the church I was raised in, fed with the husks of a convoluted gospel that wasn't a gospel at all. And so when somebody opened up to me the unvarnished truth of God, it was like, why have I never heard this? Thankfully, the truth set me free. Just like it will you. Just like it has you in many of your lives. Today there are more churches of various varieties than ever before for the choosing one of my high school friends who was here a few weeks ago, and I want to thank you, Sailorville Church, for loving on them, uh, encouraging them. They enjoyed their time here, but they'd never been in a service like this. They were overwhelmed by everything. And in the middle of it all, one of my friends leaned into me and said, hey, Pat, 
I'm kind of a cafeteria Catholic. I'm liking this. I got to thinking, there's a lot of cafeteria Christians, and some of you are among them. Not Christians at all, but you just go like a smorgasbord from one church to another church to another church, and you're looking for everything that's hip, the hippest, the coolest, the feel-good, the great music, whatever it may be, but you go away from those places as starved as you did when you walked in because you haven't been told the truth. Paul tells us that when truth, from this passage that we just read, when truth comes, it comes with conviction. It comes with Holy Spirit power. It comes with change. It comes with with an echoing forth of the word of God. It comes with this desire to tell others so that it goes so far, so wide, that it actually becomes an echo back to the very person, in this case, Paul, who gave them the truth to begin with. So I got to ask you right out of the chute, have you experienced this kind of truth? Convicting Holy Spirit, power, truth, the soul-shaking, sin-freeing, salvation-bringing truth of God. Because when it comes, it will change you. It's not enough to know truth. You must embrace it. If you embrace it, it changes you. When salvation comes, as one reformer put it, he said, it's faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone. It changes us. That was Calvin, speaking of which. John Calvin, one of the great reformers we'll look at in the days to come. We stand. And I I have to believe that many of you have no interest in the Reformation. I understand. But you should know that we stand on huge shoulders of great men and women gone before us with great courage. And if all we do in this series is learn the history without all of its life-changing ramifications, we're doomed. And I know what some of you are thinking, history, ah! I get it, but remember the old adage, if we don't learn from history, history is bound to what? Repeat itself. I rather like what comedian Woody Allen once said when he said, history has to repeat itself. Nobody listens to it the first time around. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, But we rarely celebrate movements. We rarely celebrate movements in history. 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, a movement of courageous men and women who literally God used to free the church from a captivity of sorts, of of being the truth being suffocated from their lives. Followers of Christ were being snuffed out. When the church began in Acts chapter 2, that which Jesus predicted it would happen, it exploded and went through what we know as modern-day Europe and then down into Africa as well and was on a growth through persecution but growing just the same. Around 380, 320, Constantine, the Roman emperor, claimed to become a Christian. Whether he did or not, we don't know. I'm not here to try to prove it one way or another. But what he did when he became a so-called Christian was in time he made the church, he made the church the, the state or the world religion. And so what was desired by believers, which was peace, became an undesirable thing because with that 
imposing Christianity on people, they weren't really Christians. And so they brought all of their pagan idolatry, they did, it just swept into the church, and along with it, staleness and deadness and outright idolatry. And while the church has always had Christ-honoring personalities, that they started to become less and less, and the truth of God more and more suppressed. So in, by the early 1500s, there came about a man, an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a priest. He loved God. He came to know Christ. We'll talk about that another time. But he longed for the church to be real, to be pure, to be truth-telling. So he went to Rome. With the, he was so giddy with excitement to go to Rome, the seat of authority, where the bishop of Rome, the pope was, where all the most godly people would be, and found it to be exactly the opposite. He was so discouraged when he got to Rome and found out that the priests were gaudy with wealth. They weren't preaching the truth. The gospel wasn't being told. And he went from being sort of discouraged to being completely saddened and then infuriated. By the time he got back to Germany in Wittenberg, the church had dispatched a man because what had happened was the church was losing money. And they wanted to build this beautiful basilica, St. Peter's Basilica. You're looking at it. I've been there. Some of you have been there. It's amazing. This is the Vatican you're looking at. How was it built? I can tell you right now it was built on the back of peasants. Because the Catholic Church conjured up the doctrine of purgatory. You have heaven, you have hell, and then the church taught purgatory. They still believe it to this day. This in-between state. If you're in purgatory, if you die in sins, if you haven't confessed all your sins, you go to purgatory. It's a temporary place of suffering. No fear, you'll eventually make your way to heaven. But the time frame by which you go from purgatory to heaven depends on the church on earth, depends on your prayers, depends on your monies. You give enough money through indulgences, you might free your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your friend from the fires, the temporal fires of purgatory. If you really believe that, you'd cough it up, which is exactly what they did. And there was a man whose name was Johann Tetzel, who was dispatched by the Roman church, and he was an effective fundraiser. In fact, what he would say, he had a little ditty. He said, as soon as the gold in the chest in the casket rings, the, a rescued soul to heaven springs. And people believed it. And they poured money into those coffers, and that's how that place was built. And this was infuriating to Luther. He went back home to, to Wittenberg and began to develop arguments against the sale of indulgence that came up with the famous 95 theses, 95 arguments against this excess, and went to Witt, Wittenberg door, the church door, and nailed it to the church door, which is what you did in those times when you wanted to incite debate. It would be the shot heard round the world, literally. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Because the Reformation had what we call morning stars. Men and women, but mostly men of God, who took their stand for the truth of God, the gospel of God. And you're looking at men like John Wycliffe, John Huss, 
and William Tyndale. Every one of these individuals and others had four things in common. They had in common, each of them were reacting, each of them reacted to the excesses of the church, to the fact that the church wasn't preaching the gospel, and that it was gaudy with wealth, privilege, and power. And all of these individuals predated Martin Luther by about 100 to 150 years, except for Tyndale, which I'll get back to. They all preached from the Bible in the language of the people, which was, which was I know that sounds like, well, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Not in, not in these days. 500 years plus, plus ago, they were preaching the Bible in Latin. Nobody understood it. This is how they suffocated and enslaved people. They just told them what to believe. But men, the men of God who preceded Martin Luther and were inspired, that, that is, inspired Martin Luther, they preached the word in the language of the people. A third thing that all of them had in common, this is very practical to you and me. All of them, all of their movements came from dedicated laymen and laywomen spreading the word of God. In the case of, of Whitcliffe, his followers were called lollards. The word lollards was actually a derogatory term given to him. It means murmurers or mutterers. But that, that's what their detractors would say to them. But what they did was they were taking Wycliffe's words and spreading them out. And in every generation, the church, God raises up great personalities, but the personalities in and of themselves cannot carry the day. It's, it's incumbent upon you, the lay men, the lay women, to spread the truth of God. That's how things go back. And like the Thessalonians, it comes back, it echoes back. When we go out and preach the word, the church that it really believes the message takes the message, right? Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, from you sounded out the word of God. And he says it actually came back. One more thing that these individuals all had in common. They all suffered for their faith. And Paul says all who live in God, godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it always takes place because of this unashamed approach, unashamed willingness to preach the gospel. Every one of those three that you saw up there, every one of them were burned. Two of them alive, the other the Catholics couldn't get to, so they dug him up 30 years later and burned his bones. Seriously. That's what they did. But every one of them epitomized what John said in the book of Revelation when he said, and they conquered, this time about Satan, they conquered him in three ways, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. That is, they could care less whether they died in the process because they knew they had a greater kingdom to look forward to, right? The Roman church, the leaders of the Roman church, considered the Bible a dangerous book in the hands of common people. In fact, they said that we don't want, quote, stupid and unlearned to have the Bible. No telling what would happen to them. They wanted to suffocate. They wanted to control everything about it. So they kept it in, a, in the language of Latin. Nobody spoke Latin, and so they could keep them ignorant. So along comes John Wycliffe in the 1300s. John Wycliffe... <laughs> was a Roman priest, but one who came to know Christ and loved him and loved the word of God. 
These are the days 100 years before the printing press, which is huge because it would take one scribe 10 months to give us one Bible. And Wycliffe, this, this man was amazing. He, put, he was able to translate the Bible into the language of the people. In fact, his, 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 his famous line was, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own language. So did Christ's apostles. And so it was, it was Wycliffe whose followers called the Lollards, those mutterers, who took his translation. It wasn't the best translation, but it was a good translation, and it was readable. Putting it into the hands of common people. People were coming to Jesus. People, I mean, this was a treasure. The Catholics didn't like it. They couldn't get a hold of Whitfield before he died, or not Whitfield, but Wycliffe before he died. He actually died while he was preaching. And it was him that the Catholics dug up 30 years later and burned his bones and threw him in the river in the hopes that he would never be able to be resurrected again. Unbelievable. He was followed up by one of my personal heroes, John or Jan Hus or Hus. John Hus was also a Roman priest. He was, a, he was of Czech origin. He was in Prague. He was, a, he, was a, he was pastoring in a church in Prague, and he came to know Christ, to love the word of God, and was a fiery preacher defending the faith and standing in the face of the Roman church in that day. They so despised this man that they put spies in his church. He would call out the spies. There were artists, he put artwork up in the church. He would put a picture of the Pope and all of his gaudiness, and right next to it, he would put a picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet just to show the excesses of the church. And when they went to burn his books, he says, you, in fact, he, he, he says this, fire doesn't consume truth. But his most famous line had to do with his name because who's rhymes with goose it literally means goose and so when he was facing when he was tried and defrocked literally defrocked they they what that what what they did the bishop condemned him to death and in so doing they they put on priestly garments and then stripped them one by one by one until they condemned him outright sent him to the stake to be burned just before they took him there he said these words You may cook this goose, but there will come a swan who will not be silent. This is where we get the expression, your goose is cooked. He says, you can cook this goose, but there will come a swan who will not be silenced. And they burned him at the stake. A hundred years later comes an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther, whose, whose hero was Jan Hus. He said, he said, anybody who follows Jesus is a true Hussite or Husite. Martin Luther saw himself as the prophecy. He saw himself as the swan. And are you ready for this irony? When Martin Luther was ordained a priest, he stood in the cathedral where he was ordained, on the very spot where the bishop who condemned his hero, Jan Hus, a hundred years earlier, was buried right beneath him. Which is what they do in these, they bury their heroes in their churches right under the altars. 
he stood literally right on top of the guy who had condemned his hero 100 years earlier when he was ordained to the priesthood. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He was contemplating this, and he said, I wonder if 100 years earlier when Huss was condemned, and when he said, you know, you can cook this goose, but from, from me a swan will come. I wonder if the bishop who condemned him thought and said, over my dead body. <laughs> Which is exactly what happened. One more one more morning star. In reality, this man was a contemporary of Luther, but I got to give him to you because he, he loved the word of God so much, and we were talking about William Tyndale. William Tyndale was, was a man who, he would, in fact, one of, one of my grandsons is named after this guy. He was brilliant. He was passionate. He knew eight different languages, including Hebrew and Greek, the language of the Bible. And so he determined, because of all these excesses that all the other guys saw as well, the fact that truth was being oppressed and suppressed, he determined to put the language of the Bible into the language of the people from the original languages, which made a great translation. In fact, one day, in, in a debate with one of his pastor friends, the priest said to him, we are better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. This infuriated Tyndale, and he replied with his famous statement. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy who drives the plow to, more, to know more scriptures than you. Which is what he did. He translated in the Bible from the original language. The King James Bible owes its, its debt of gratitude to William Tyndale's translation of the Bible. He would be tried, rested, tried, and burned at the stake. The last words known to come out of William Tyndale's mouth were these. Lord, open the eyes of the king. And two years later, the king of England, Henry VIII himself, would authorize the Bible in the English language to the people. How cool is that? And what I want to do in, as we begin this series is just challenge you today to love the truth of God. In fact, I give it to you in an acronym. I give it to you in acrostic. Love the truth of God. That's the first thing you got to do. Love the truth of God. Do you? Do you love this Bible, your Bible? Do you love it? You should. Oh, how I love your law, the psalmist said. It is my meditation all the day long. Somebody says, well, no, I want to love God, not his word. Let me tell you something. You love his word. You do love God. These are his words. Don't you love the words of God? Do you love the words of God? And how do you know if you do? Do you meditate upon it? Do you memorize scripture? Listen to what the Lollards, those were the followers of Wycliffe. I'm sorry, I take it back, Tyndale's followers. So later on, urged one another with these words, quote, learn but one word a day, and after a year you will know 300, and then you will progress. Memorize 300 verses? How many of you have memorized three in the last year? You want to know whether you love the truth of God? 
ask yourself how much it really means to you, that you would take it to heart and mind. Jeremiah said, your word I did find and I did eat it, and it was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Job said, I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. Do you love the word of God? How do you know if you love? How do you know if a husband loves his wife? He talks about her. How do you know if a wife loves her husband? She talks about him. You can't help it. These are all the evidences. And the Thessalonian church loved the word of God and they sounded it forth. They trumpeted it forth. Do you do that? Do you have such love? Love the truth of God. And then obey the truth of God. Because the truth matters, you can't really, you can say you love the truth of God, but if you don't obey it, you don't really love, you're lying to yourself. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll what? Obey me, right? That's what he said in John 14. The psalmist said, a good understanding have all those who do your commandments. Jesus, after washing the disciples' feet, said, if you know these things, happy are you if you what? If you do them. Be doers of the word, James said, not hearers only, because if you do that, you're just deceiving your own selves. Obey the truth of God. Here, you say, how did the Thessalonians do it? Verse 6, and you became mimite, you became mimics. Our family got together a week ago. The adults were playing wiffle ball, and the little ones wanted to get involved. My three-year-old grandson wanted to pitch. So we let him. I was going to show you a video, but it's just crazy. He has perfect form. He got the ball behind his back like a pitcher was. He puts the perfect lineup, threw it right in there. Three years old. His dad says to me, yeah, he watches his brother a lot. He's a mimic. This is what little ones do. This is what we're called to do. How do we mimic the truth of God? We do it by not just loving it, but by obeying it. Will you commit yourself to love the truth of God, to obey the truth of God today? And then verify the truth of God. In this very same epistle, the last chapter, the 21st verse, Paul says, Prove everything, he says to the audience. He says to the Thessalonians, prove everything and hold fast what is good. You prove everything by the word. Don't believe what I'm saying. Believe what the word says. I've got news for you. The Bible can take your questions. The Bible can take your doubts. The Bible can take your criticisms. All of it. You don't have to be afraid. The Roman church didn't want to put the hands, the Bible into the hands of common people because they were worried sick what it would do. I say, give it to them. People say to me, why, what resource should we give to people who come to know Jesus? I got an idea. How about the Bible? And stop worrying about what it's going to do. Read the word. Read it in its entirety. Memorize the word. Obey the word. You can verify the truth of God. It will stand up every time because Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So you can just put everything, you can put all of the, every arsenal that the devil has to throw it at. This book will survive. You've got to believe that. That's how you love the truth of God. And finally, 
experience the truth of God, which is what some of you need to do here. You've given lip service to Jesus for a long time, but it's not real in your life. When you come to know Jesus, it becomes a real experience. You believe the truth, and from that comes the experience. In the very next chapter, in the second chapter, in the 13th verse, Paul says, I'm so happy, I'm so thankful to God, because when you, when you received the word which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Watch this that effectively works in those who believe. Have you ever read that? The word of God, when it truly comes, effectively works in those who believe. You have an experience. You saw it in the very reading of the text. The spirit of God comes in. He convicts you. You turn to God from idols. You serve the living and true God. That's the experience you need. That's the experience some of you lack. These reformers and even the morning stars of the Reformation, many of them were bound and burned, but all of them were free. And Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. God, thank you for this opening salvo, so to speak, of this celebration of what you have done in a great movement, and we stand surely, truly on the shoulders of great men and women who've gone before us, unashamed of your gospel, loving the truth of yours, the truth of God, the Bible, true love for it that bears itself through obedience, and we believe in the veracity of your word. It can be verified. We're not afraid to take every tough question. I pray for those in this room, Lord, and those who'd be listening elsewhere uh, will watch this online who struggle with questions and criticisms and doubts. Lord, we welcome them and we welcome you. We pray, God, you will speak to their hearts and help them to realize we're not afraid of the Bible and may it have its impact on them. And I pray for the experience of God in the hearts of those who don't know Jesus. If that's you, friend, you've never trusted Jesus, really, because the energizing work of God is not evident in your life, would you humble your heart today and receive him and know the love of God? Truly, Lord, if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We don't go in our own strength. We go in the truth of God, the energizing, life-changing, eternity-shaping truth of God May we be recommitted to it, and some of us for the first time today, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.